Daniel chapter 4, we're going to read in its entirety, the whole chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. Let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown, and it reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to him, gives it to whom he will. Ultimately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord, sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful event, Lord, that you've been pleased to record in your sacred word for our instruction, for our guidance, for our encouragement, for many cases for our rebuke. 
So, Father, we pray that you would accomplish all the above in our hearts as we look to you. May our eyes be upon you, O Father. Teach us from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The old English Puritan Matthew and Henry, commenting on this great chapter many years ago, said, quote, The beginning and end of this chapter lead us to hope that Nebuchadnezzar was a monument of the power of divine grace and of the riches of divine mercy. After he was recovered from his madness, he told to distant places and wrote down for future ages how God had justly humbled and graciously restored him. End of quote. This is, uh, I... I begin with this quote because this quote is exactly where I got the idea for the title of this message this morning. The title is The Power of Divine Grace. Think of that for the moment. The Power of Divine Grace. I can't think of a single subject that's more heartwarming than the subject of God's sovereign grace. I can't think of a subject that's more obedience-producing than the subject of God's divine grace. And that is the grand theme of uh, this chapter uh, this morning. As we read this chapter, it would be easy for us to forget who Nebuchadnezzar actually is or who Nebuchadnezzar actually was. Uh, You'll recall through our study so far, uh, we saw in Chapter 1, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, lays siege to the city of God, right? You've heard me say this several times. He lays siege to the people of God, right? Carrying off the people of God back to Babylon. He lays siege to the temple of God, plundering it, taking the the gold and the silver out of it, carrying it back to his God. And furthermore, Nebuchadnezzar was the leader and his, his armies carried out tasks with such cruel delight They committed unspeakable acts against the people of God, acts that I wouldn't even repeat in here, things that they did to the people of God. And we've seen also how little Nebuchadnezzar has valued life as we think of chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It troubles him. He calls his counselors to tell him the dream. If they can't tell him the dream, he tells them, I'm going to tear you apart limb from limb. (laughs) And I'm going to destroy your households. And I'm going to render your houses uh, into latrines, is what he says, in essence. Furthermore, in chapter 3, he sets up this big monument where he leads all of the nations into false worship. And there, three of his best men refuse to worship him. And he's this close to, he throws them in the fiery furnace, doesn't he? But look at verses 2 and 3. He says, It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. You almost got to wonder, is this the same Nebuchadnezzar? 
This is the guy that was leading all the nations into false worship. It almost sounds like, like he's had a change of mind, doesn't it? His address is to all the nations. And instead of saying, worship me by virtue of this 90-foot statue, he's now a witness to the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the compassion, and most importantly, the sovereignty of Almighty God, isn't he? Look at the end. Look at verses 34 through 37 with me. Notice there, Nebuchadnezzar starts verse 34. He's praising and honoring Almighty God. Listen to his testimony. His dominion, that is God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was up to with that 90-foot statue. With that 90-foot statue made of gold, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, my kingdom is an eternal kingdom. My kingdom is going to endure forever. What's he saying here? He's saying something completely different. It is God's kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. It's God's kingdom that will last forever from generation to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will. Among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And skip to verse 37 with me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What has happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What's happened to him? It's the power of divine grace. The power of divine grace. It's a story of God seeking sinners. Getting their attention. Sending His people to them. To share His word to them. It's a story of God humbling proud hearts. And it's a story of God restoring souls. It's a story of God's glorious mercy. It's a snapshot of His glorious heart. What I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is we've looked at the beginning of the story. We've looked at the end of the story. Let's look at the middle. Let's look at verses 4 through 33, and let's, let's look at it with an eye to God's labor in the heart of this great sinner, Nebuchadnezzar. And let's put one eye on the heart of Nebuchadnezzar while we put the other eye on our very own hearts. We got two eyes, we can do that, right? Let's begin. What's the first thing? First thing, God has to get the sinner's attention. Look with me to verse 4. Verse 4 finds Nebuchadnezzar at home, at ease, and prosperous. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I think, I think this really d describes a lot of what's going on in our current society. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's worked hard, hasn't he? He has, he has issued his military campaigns. He's been a military genius, actually. He's been victorious all over, the, all over the known worlds. He's fought his wars. He's organized his kingdom. Now he's at home at rest. He's gathered his wealth, and he's living in every luxury that's known to man at that period of time. And I share this with you because this is not a description of someone who we would describe as open to the gospel. 
<laughs> not a description of someone who would be open to the gospel. Complacency is deadly to our souls. I mean, in our fallen state, we don't want to go to heaven. We want to make heaven here. We do everything we can to try to make heaven right here. In our fallen state, we're not fit for heaven and we wouldn't enjoy heaven. We want to make heaven right here where we are Lord of our little kingdom. That's what we want to do. The last thing that Nebuchadnezzar wants to do right now is change. Everything is perfect. Everything is going just the way he wants it to. In fact, his greatest fear is that it changes. And verse 4 describes a lot of people in our society. And we might say, well, it doesn't describe me. I'm not living like this. Well, no, it doesn't describe everybody, but I would submit it describes the goals of a whole lot of people. And truth be told, too often is the case, it describes our own goals as well, doesn't it? How so easily we take our eyes off the Lord. And once our eyes are off the Lord, where are our eyes? They're on the world. They're on something that He has created. And off we go. This, verse 4, is, I mean, this is a picture of being on the beach, reclined back with drink in hand and the, the shade over. This is, this, is, this is perfect. Nebuchadnezzar at home at ease and prosperous. When I was in seminary, I had to, one of the tasks I had to do in order to graduate, all of us had to do, was we had to go through Pittsburgh knocking door to door and sharing the gospel. Uh, and um, with this story, I want to be really careful because... I don't want to villainize a certain strata of people. I don't want to stereotype a certain strata of people. But 90% of the conversations that we had were with people who had the very least. Now, listen, I want to be careful with this illustration. The poor can covet riches just as much as the rich. But I would say 90% of the conversations that we were able to have were with people who had the very least. And the point of this uh, 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 of this illustration is to say this toys ease luxury all of these things cause us to be more close to the gospel don't they they have a tendency to close us i mean if we can get more and more if we can create our own little heaven then we long for the real deal less and less do we not this is the case with nebuchadnezzar so when god wants to get the attention of a complacent Sinner, what does he have to do? Well, very often he creates a nightmare. And I'm using nightmare both literally and figuratively here. I'm not saying all of us will have a nightmare just before we're converted, but I will say that Nebuchadnezzar does. Um, nightmares can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Sometimes they come in the shape of uh, trial storms, personal failure, and personal loss. Uh, if you look with, with me to verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare. Now, if, if you're living, you know, high on the hog here, one of the greatest fears you're ever going to have is that there's going to come a day where you can't live high on the hog anymore. Your greatest fear is that you're going to lose control of your kingdom. Your greatest fear is that you're going to lose all your goodies. You're going to lose all your stuff. Uh, you're not going to be able to live this way any longer. And uh, to the ancients, dreams were very significant. If you recall, I said this in chapter 2, that the ancient peoples actually believed that the gods spoke to them by way of dreams. And God knows this. 
See, God knows how to get our attention. He knows perfectly how to get our attention. He can get our attention anytime he wants to. And what's God up to here? He's going to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. How does he do it? He gives him a troubling dream. Now, what do worldly men do when they have troubles? They look to the world's resources. They'll do it every time. If you look at verse 6, what does, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Who does he turn to in times of his treble? He turns to his worldly wise men. Now, at this point, I think we might be tempted to say, Nebuchadnezzar, what are you doing? I mean, you've done this how many times before? At least that we know about. Last time you had a dream, you caught on these characters. They weren't able to help you. What makes you think they're, they're going to help you now? And, you know, quite frankly, in chapter 3, this group of characters were really trying to lead you to execute your very best men. Nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar, he's turning to them again, and it's an illustration of the fallen art. This is an illustration of the fallen art. Always wanting to lean on the world's resources. Always wanting to go on the, the world's resources. Well, how does that work out? Verse 7. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. Nebuchadnezzar tells them the dream, but they could not make it known. They could not tell him the interpretation. Listen, creation will never be able to do that which only God can do. Creation will never be able to do the things that only God can do. It's just not going to happen. So now, with nowhere else to turn, God has the sinner's attention. What's God do next? He sends His people into the scene. He sends His people into the scene. The worldly man turns to God's servant as a last resort. And uh, verse 8, uh, we see, Neb we see uh, Daniel coming into the scene. And it's here where often we're tempted to say, you know, okay, we're at the end of our rope. And we're tempted to say, you know, I, I mean, I would like to turn to God at this point, but how can I do that now after I've exhausted all my resources? And we think to ourselves, why would God want to listen to me now that I've... If I had went to Him first, then I think He would have listened to me. But I can almost hear Him say, you know, okay, you turn to me now, huh? You turn to me now after you've exhausted all your resources. If you'd have come to me first, I'd have helped you, but you got me at the very end. I'm always at the very end of your life. I'm always at the very end. I think you should just go pound salt. I've talked to people that think that way. <laughs> well, what we have happening here is so opposite of that. God already has His man in place for the consolation, the encouragement, and eventually for the restoration of this great sinner. God has Daniel right where He wants Daniel to be. And Daniel comes into the scene. And we can make application of this, you know, um, tomorrow when you all go to work, don't think it's an accident that you all go to where you go. You know, Daniel's at work. This is what Daniel does. It's his turn to come into the palace. He's at work. 
He works for Nebuchadnezzar. It's no accident that he works for Nebuchadnezzar. Just as it's no accident that any of us are where we are. This afternoon when we go to work. Tomorrow, whenever time it is we go to work. It's no accident that you're there. God has Daniel right where he wants him. He says he providentially sends him in. The fact here is God is seeking Nebuchadnezzar. While Nebuchadnezzar is hating God. That's what's happening. And this is the heart of God. It's the very heart of God. Look at verse 8 with me. At last, Daniel came in before me, uh, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in who is the spirit of the holy gods. We learn a lot about Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual condition here as he describes the dream. Notice some of the terminology he uses. Um, First of all, he's referring to Daniel's Belteshazzar. That's the pagan name that he gave to Daniel uh, whenever he, he carried him into Babylon. And secondly, he says that uh, not only is Daniel named after his God, lowercase g, but he is the one who, uh, who is in possession of the spirit of the holy gods. Do you see the plurality there? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not only a heathen king, but he's one who we would call a polytheist. He's one who believes in all kinds of different gods. So what's Nebuchadnezzar do next? He tells Daniel the dream. And in the dream, verse 10, the king saw a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. Verse 11, the tree grew, became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. He continues on. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant. Its food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all of the flesh was fed from it. You know, if I might just quickly say a comment about last week when I was talking about the idolatrous states. You know, the, the case of a government is to care for the people. Even in the midst of this horribly idolatrous state, you see, God is still taking care of the people through it. We see that in the imagery that's given here in the dream. If we continue on, verse 13, the king continues, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed in a loud voice, verse 14, Chop the tree down, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. All right, having told the dream, Daniel, uh, having told the dream to Daniel, the king now uh, awaits the interpretation. Notice Daniel's reaction in verse 19. I I will tell you, I think in terms of, me personally, in preparing for this message, this is the section of the story that has ministered to me the most. I'll explain why. Look at Daniel's reaction. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. You know, it's like Daniel's got it, but he doesn't really want to say it. And the king picks up on this. He says, Daniel... 
don't, okay, it's okay, Daniel, give it to me. If it's bad news, give it to me. Notice how Daniel responds. He says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. This is what's really struck me about this passage. Daniel seems to care about Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't he? Now, we might say he's just afraid to share the, 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 the story. I think there was some fear. I wouldn't dismiss the fear, but I'm not going to sell Daniel so short. I think he actually cares for the king. And what is ministered to me so much is that the king has ransacked Daniel's city. He ransacked Daniel's people. He ransacked and plundered the temple of Daniel's God. And, you know, Psalm 137 is famous for its last verse. You know that verse that says, where the psalmist says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Have you ever heard that verse? As Christians, we read that verse and we think, how can we sing something like that? What are we to do with that? Well, that verse lets us in on some of the cruelty, some of the cruel acts that the Babylonian army did as they ransacked the people of God. It was commonplace in antiquity, in the ancients, when they went in, that they destroyed everything, men, women, and children. And here we have a graphic uh, illustration of how some of the children were slaughtered. And the psalmist is recounting this. And he is not asking for personal vengeance here. He's just asking for justice. That the, that the punishment, the just punishment, would be equal to the crime. See, what amazes me here is Daniel knows this. You know, when I hold Kylie and I think of that verse, and I try to think, imagine this army coming in here and doing these things. Would I be able to care for the leader of this army? Of course, that has really convicted me because I have trouble praying for people whose political ideologies are different than mine, whose faith is different than mine. And too many times I've been found speaking evil of my rulers. Boy, Daniel sure takes us down a different road here, doesn't he? You remember last week, one of, the, one of the, the, the real burdens I had last week wasn't just how do we stand amidst an idolatrous state, it was how do we minister in the midst of it. You see, too often Daniel was preached and the whole idea is how do you stand amidst this, how do you stand amidst this. If that's all we see in Daniel, we don't have Daniel. We don't get it. Daniel does more than stand. He is actively ministering in a land that's so different than his. Our land is changing radically. I think Daniel's a great... That's one of the reasons why I wanted to study Daniel. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we do this? Well, 
Back to the dream. Daniel's troubled because he sees from God that the king is the tree and that the tree is about to be humbled. He says to the king in verse 22, he, he said, King, uh, you know, I hate to break it to you, but you know that tree that was destroyed in your dream? Um, that king, oh king, that tree is you. Verse 25, you, O king, shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. No. King's about to fall. It's not terminal. We know that it's not terminal. Verse 26 assures us the king will be reinstated, but only after he comes to know that heaven rules. So what, where are we at now? God gets the sinner's attention, right? He sends his people to the sinner to minister his word to him. And if you look at verse 25, you see God gives time for repentance. God gives Nebuchadnezzar time for repentance. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that they may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And verse 29 tells us it's a full year. But at the end of the year, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace. Verse 30, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? You see, the king don't get it. He still don't get it. He looks out at his kingdom. And historians tell us that there were hanging gardens in his, in his kingdom that were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That this kingdom indeed was absolutely glorious. And there was a wall as far around as you could see around this city that we're told is so wide that you could turn around a chariot, a four-horse chariot on it. And Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this glorious kingdom and he's taking the full credit for himself for this whole kingdom. He still believes that he is at the center of the universe, doesn't he? What happens next? What happens next is... God uses a painful experience to show Nebuchadnezzar he's not the center of the universe. Look with me to verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The king has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Just like that, in one moment, this glorious king, the most powerful man in the world, in an instant, is reduced to a beast where he will live as a beast. And this brings us to one of God's most useful tools in bringing sinners to repentance, and that's personal loss, painful experience. 
I know this all too well because I'm a living example. I didn't come to Christ at the best time of my life. I came to Christ during the worst time of my life. See, I, I got that God gets your attention part. And if we were to exchange stories, I think some of us would say, you know, I got that part too. One of God's most useful tools in getting, in, in converting sinners and humbling proud hearts is painful personal experience. And it doesn't end at conversion. Our hearts, you know, we're described as sheep in the Bible. Uh, do you know anything about sheep? You don't really have to know a whole lot about sheep. No, that's not a compliment. We're just bent on doing things our way, going the wrong way. So the life is littered with painful experience after painful experience after painful experience. But it's during the painful experience where God really does a majority of the work in our lives. We do everything we can to hold those experiences off. We do everything we can to keep those experiences from happening. But after a while, after a while, I think as we mature, and I've kind of got to say that I'm kind of coming to the place where I almost understand, James, you know, consider it pure joy, my friends. When you face trials of many kinds, where's old Nebuchadnezzar at now? You know, the caricature in the, in the morning paper would probably have a picture of a man who looked homeless with hair, looking a lot like Captain Caveman. And it might read under, look at you now. Where is Nebuchadnezzar now? The words were given to Nebuchadnezzar that he would live like a beast for seven periods of time. This is often thought of seven years. I don't know if it was seven years or not. I only know it was seven periods of time. Seven's a word of completion in the Bible. I don't know how long Nebuchadnezzar walked around on all fours eating grass. What I do know is he did it as long as it took. That's how long he did it. As long as it took. Psalm 94 and verse 12 tells us, Blessed is the man whom you discipline. And Nebuchadnezzar is no exception. Look with me to verse 34 and you'll see the restoration of this great sinner. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And if you look at verse 36, which we skipped a, a few minutes ago, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now Nebuchadnezzar gets it. Now he gets it. It is Almighty God who sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar was on the roof of his palace, taking full credit for his kingdom for himself. Seven periods ago, now he understands that it's God who sets up kings. It's God who removes kings. In fact, what has God done here? He set up a king, he's removed the king, and then he set him up again. You know, it's an amazing thing. You know, I was talking with Cody last night. It's amazing, it's an amazing thing. You know, that the counselors, that, that, how, how does a man who looks like Captain Caveman get reinstated to be numero uno back in Babylon? It's quite an amazing thing. You know, you can you know, imagine, you go to a park bench and there's a guy who hasn't had a bath in seven years 
or whatever. They say, there's the king. What? That's kind of what happened. It's God who sets up kings. If God wants to pull a man off a park bench and set him up in the Oval Office, he'll do it. <laughs> he'll do it. He will definitely do it. So just like that, the great king who was reduced to a beast is now restored to his kingdom. I want to point one more thing out to you, and I'll make a couple of comments and we'll close. If you look with me again to verse 34, this is really maybe one of the most important parts of the whole thing. At the end of the days, that is at the end of the seven periods, notice, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my what to heaven? I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. Here's, this, this, is the, this is the lesson here. See, Nebuchadnezzar, up to this point, always had his eyes on himself. My glory, my kingdom, my desires, my wants, my, 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 me, me, me. But at the end of these seven periods, what's he do? He lifted his eyes to heaven. And what happened? He's restored. This is the same thing that God tells us through Isaiah 45, verse 22, which is actually the verse that converted Charles Spurgeon. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Here's the power of divine grace. Can Nebuchadnezzar really take the credit for this confession? Only if he can take the credit for being a beast for the last seven periods. I'm not sure he wants to take credit for that. God sought Nebuchadnezzar. A couple of concluding thoughts. What do we make of all of this? Well, in this story, we see that God is able to humble the proudest sinner, don't we? We see that he's able to restore the most unlikely of candidates. I have to be remembered of this all the time because sometimes I get it in my head. When I think of some person out here who's doing all these things that are unimaginable, I think, I just don't look for salvation to come to them. They're just too far gone. Then we read this. Nebuchadnezzar's pretty far gone. God restores him. We should never do that, should we? But that fills us with hope, doesn't it? All of us have family members that are really gone, don't, they? don't we? I don't know if God's going to convert them. I don't know if he's going to convert your family members that are gone any more than I know if he's going to convert my family members that are really far gone. But what I do know from this passage, and I think if you've been following with me, you know it now too. He can. He can. He converts the most unlikely of candidates. Nebuchadnezzar, I can't think of too many unlikely candidates. And in fact, people who grew up with me, people who knew me, I was the most unlikely person to be called to the pastorate. Here I am. All by God's divine grace. There's no sinner that's too far gone. And this should fill us with hope, not only for our own hearts, but for the hearts of those who are around us. Amen. Heavenly Father,
Lord, we thank you and praise you for this great story, this snapshot, this picture of your divine grace, of the power of your divine grace. For, O oh, Father, you sought this great sinner who was a, an enemy of yours. You sought him. You got his attention. You sent your people to minister your word to him. You humbled him, and you restored him. Well, Father, this is not the exact story of all of us in the room. Some of us have been believers since we were born, and, or we can never remember a time not, not believing in you. But for, for some of us, Father, this is exactly the story. Father, you intruded in our lives when we were just living for ourselves. You got our attention. You humbled us. And you restored us. Well, Father, for that we're thankful. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.